There are two readings this morning. Uh, the first comes from the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked Carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The second reading comes from the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, we've been yeah, in, our, in our vision series for the last four weeks, and today we come to the last part of our vision, the fourth part, which is um, imagine a church community that nourishes spiritual seekers and inspires creatives. So inspires creatives is the bit that we're looking at this morning. There are creative people all over the world. 
our creator God made human beings in his image and one of the things that means is that we are created to be creators. Uh, if you think about the story of Adam and Eve, when God put man and woman in the garden of Eden, he set them about creating order out of chaos. Uh, their purpose was to work the garden and to take care of it. They categorised the animals, gave them names. And this was the creative work of the first human beings in God's perfect creation. This is how it was meant to be. Uh, they were living out their true nature as creatures made in God's image. In a sense, all people participate in this creative work in one way or another, producing things, working the land, and so on. And then there are also people who pursue creativity in a different way, a more particular kind of way, with a focus, and they try and make beautiful things out of nothing. They, they do it because they love it, and they want to express themselves. Creativity becomes the focus of their lives. And it's these people who really, I think, we're, we're thinking about when we say this in our vision. Creatives often congregate in, in the inner city, in urban areas. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, which I'm not, I won't go into, but this is certainly the case in Melbourne. In fact, if you look at the City of Melbourne's vision statement, um, part of the vision and strategy is this. Um, Melbourne will be a place that inspires experimentation, innovation and creativity and fosters leaders of ideas and courage. It supports and values its artists and broader creative community. It will invest in the creativity of people of all backgrounds and ability in all pursuits. Melbourne's reputation will attract and retain pioneers in the creative arts and innovation sector and enable them to contribute to the city's prosperity. You couldn't get much clearer than that. And I think they're doing a pretty good job and, and even the city of Yarra, I'm sure, um, would have similar kind of thoughts. And if you live in this area, it's not hard to encounter these people. You see the evidence of the emphasis on, 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 uh, on creative culture just by looking around, like, you know, think about the, the posters we see all around us. If you just go out onto Alexander Parade, just down the road, there'll be just posters all down on buildings advertising the next concerts or art festivals or things like that. Many people in this culture earn their living from their creativity, but a common story often here is that people have a certain kind of job where they earn their money and then they have this other creative pursuit on the side, which really is what their identity is grounded in. And I'm one of these type of people. Uh, I, I, I have to say it's a little bit different for me because I'm not just a minister, minister to earn the money and then I'm also playing bands on the side. But it's very much a big part of who I am. I, you know, I have my recording studio at home and it's really, I get a lot out of um, recording songs and writing songs and being involved in other, in, in, in music and, and that sort of thing. Um, and lots of people I meet are like that. Joe's like that. She's got her book that she's writing. And if I start to list people in our congregation, some who are earning their living from their creativity, others who are creative people but not earning their living, it's a huge, amazing list. For example, get this, Jerome and Stephanie and Nick are all photographers. Kath's a violinist. 
and music teacher. Laura is a soprano and music teacher. Matt's a drummer and a music teacher. Anne plays in the MSO. Rochelle's a chamber music violinist. Eugene heads up leading percussion ensemble. Cara's a singer. Emma's a singer, writes songs and has her own band. Hamish is a violinist. John O'Mick and Tom play the guitar. Tom also plays the bagpipes. Hopefully he'll bring it to church sometime. Beck's a singer and an art enthusiast. Phil's a guitarist and he used to be the music pastor in a church. Jean has her own songs that she releases on Bandcamp. Sam has his own lo-fi electronic band called Chapters. You should check it out. Lenore writes musicals for kids on Phillip Island. Uh, Naomi's a singer. Campbell's a singer and a, a teacher of music to people with disabilities. Mark used to sing in choirs and, and, and was a dancer. Lucy is in her band, tape, Paper Tapia. Luke used to play drums on cruise ships and also happened to be the music director here. We have a lot of amazing musos, ladies and gentlemen. There's many more that I could have named. And, and actually, as a result, we're going to record our first worship album this year. So that's an exciting thing. There's the announcement, slipped into the sermon. But there's more people than that. There's Patrick, who's an author with several novels to his name. There's Tom, who writes youth ministry-related books. There's Mick, who writes eco-theology books. There's Andy, who just read to the Bible before, who's also a journalist with the AOP. There's Josh, who's an actor for TV. There's Karen, who we've just heard from, who's a stage and, and TV actor. Lee, who runs a business as an animator. Celeste, who illustrated the drawing on the front of the book, who's also going to train to be a, an animator. Christine, who's an illustrator with her own website. There's Beth, who formerly worked on the uh, Marvel movies in 3D animation. There's Ben, who's a black and white photographer, colorist. There's uh, Ashley and Toby, who are graphic designers. Ashley's also a, a costume maker, and Toby's also a bass player. There's Tom, Sophie, and David, who are architects. There's Sally, who's a landscape architect. There's Nomi and Megan, who work in fashion. And Megan also worked as an actor. There's Annie, Emily, and Christine, who are visual artists. Ella, who's a ballerina. Andrea, who sews. There's Kate, who runs her own pottery studio. I could go on and on and on. And there's many names I didn't mention. I didn't mention all the kids. I didn't mention all the people who are creative in their, in their workplaces in different ways. People who are creative in their gardens. People who cook for their friends. We have creativity in abundance in our church. And it is partly a consequence of our demographics. That's the kind of area that we live in. But I think it's who we are as a church, and I think we do well in this area. So what we want to be is a church that inspires creatives. How do we do that? Some people would say if you have a church, you do that by having lots of arty worship and arty things that you do. And I think that's okay, but that's not really the main way. You do it, I think, by valuing creativity for its own sake, by celebrating and prioritising creativity and helping creative people see how their gift and passion brings glory to God. We try and have excellence in our church with creativity but without elitism. We celebrate people's giftedness and then at the same time have an encouraging atmosphere, encouraging culture that involves people. Our choir was a good example of that. There were people in the choir, some of whom were experienced singers and others who'd never sung before ever in front of an audience. Why do we do it? That's the, and that's what, the why is essentially what this sermon's about. It's because, well, there's a few reasons. Firstly, it sharpens our mission. And secondly, it enriches our worship. 
We want to inspire creatives because it sharpens our mission and it enriches our worship. And to guide our thinking about how it sharpens our mission, we're going to look at Paul's method in Acts 17. And to understand how it enriches our worship, we're going to look at Paul's message in Acts 17. So let's look at this, the first idea. We want to inspire creatives because it sharpens our mission. So as we do this, we're going to look at how Paul engages with philosophy and the philosophers of Athens to communicate the gospel to them. And in doing so, the leap I'm making here, you need to make this leap, okay? We can learn how to engage with creativity and creative people in our culture and communicate the gospel to creative people in the inner north. That's the leap I'm making, not a huge leap. In Athens in Paul's day, the pride and joy of the culture was philosophy. For about 400 years, they, ha- they produced these incredible philosophers, people who we still read to this day. So imagine that. Two and a half thousand years ago, people were writing and we still read them today. People like Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Pythagoras. They shaped human thought and culture. Now, Melbourne's had about 120 years of football, AFL football, and you can see how much that's embedded into our culture. Imagine if we had have had 400 years of football, how much worse it would be. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, like, think about how much it would be just so embedded in who we are, pride and joy. That's what Athens was like with their philosophy. And it was such a big thing that the rabbis who were in Athens saw themselves as competitors for the hearts and minds of the people. And they, there's a lot of writing from that period of rabbis trying to kind of take on the philosophers. And there was even a kind of a conspiracy theory, which is probably half right, among some of the rabbis that some of the philosophers, including especially Pythagoras, I believe, stole from Moses. Um, and, and there's been some research into that in the possibility of that. Anyway, Athens was this big, important cosmopolitan city. It was like the New York City of its day. And Paul arrived there and headed for the marketplace where people would hang around and talk about philosophy and where the philosophers gathered in their different tribes because there were different philosophies that they subscribed to. But when he got there, he was totally distressed for what he saw because he saw it full of idols What were these smart people in Athens? I thought this is like the cosmopolitan centre of the world. They're smart philosophers. And then they're worshipping these created sculptures and statues that they've made. That's what Paul's thinking. And like a good missionary, Paul's heart ached for them. Now, Paul understood Greek philosophy. He's a smart guy and he knew how to have an intelligent discussion about it. So he sets about having these discussions, drawing on the connections between philosophy and the gospel so as to bring people to Jesus. Now, he could have rejected their philosophy outright as sinful altogether. Or he could have done the exact opposite and gone in and like tried to disguise his Christianity and to sort of water it down to fit in and be accepted by the cool philosophers, but he didn't do that either. Rather... While he could easily see the sinfulness of the Athenian culture, he chose to make connections. He chose to point out the problems and the sin, but he also made connections between the gospel and the philosophy to find 
how to, tell, to, to communicate these concepts to them. He exposed the problems and showed how Jesus is to the, the answer to the questions they didn't even realise they were asking. An important strategy to notice with what Paul does here is where he goes to do his outreach. Verse 17 says he goes to the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks and to the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. He got amongst the people on their turf and tried to meet them, anybody who would want to have a listen. And that was a key reason for, for me why I started Mustard Schools Ministry because I thought when I was employed back at St Hilary's back then to do youth ministry, well, we could try and do youth outreach and have our base at the church and have school students come to us or we could go to them in their school and see anyone who happened to be there. And that was the whole strategy. And it worked really well. When the Mary Creek Choir sang uh, those gigs at the Wesleyan Hotel in High Street, Northcote, I loved how present we were amongst the people of High Street, Northcote. Christians doing our thing, singing songs about Jesus, and people just walking in. This is the missionary mindset. Go to where the people are. A close friend of mine, Tim Hine, Dr. Reverend Dr. Tim Hines, a Uniting Church Ministry in Adelaide. He's also a very successful on a very successful podcast called The Unmade Podcast. And he does this with his old um, school friend, Brady Harron, who's now based in London. And they have subscribers and listeners all over the world. And Brady's a very successful podcaster and videographer with several YouTube, YouTube channels with three and four million subscribers, big, big, and he earns his full-time living from this. And so the Unmade podcast is not a Christian show. It's about thinking up ideas for podcasts that haven't been made yet. It's really just an excuse to have humorous discussion and interesting dialogue. And Tim on the show is openly a, a pastor and he often talks about Bible colleges and his church and church life. And they have a huge following. And People would just listen and enjoy the podcast. And Tim is like this feature of the, of the two-man show. And they even have a huge following to the point where some interesting creatives follow. And you can see here, um, this is... Um, so Eric Larson, I don't know if you know, but he's, he's like a famous comic book writer and did all the Spider-Man comics in the 90s. He's a fan of the show and he made this whole edition of the comic book and you can see the two characters in the middle down there is Tim. Tim's on the right there and Brady's on the left. And he included them in the comic edition that goes around the world. Um, and there's a KFC there because I was obsessed with KFC. And there's a tiger there because Tim Barracks for Richmond. Tim, I'm telling you this story because Tim goes to the podcast because he loves it. He's a creative. It's fun. But also a byproduct is that he's meeting people where they are at. He's using his creative skills and insights to engage the people who happen to be listening. Now, sometimes when you place yourself amongst the people and open your mouth as a Christian, some people will bag you out and call you a waffler. Um, the Melbourne journalist Barney Schwartz, who worked for The Age, uh, now retired, and uh, he works as a kind of ambassador, I think, for the Centre for Public Christianity. He wrote an article last week on the Christian covenant of marriage in relation to the breakup of Bill and Melinda Gates. And it was just nothing controversial about it. It was just the Christian understanding of the covenant of marriage. But then 
the responses under the ages Facebook posts were things like this. A religious, pious editorial. God, the age is really irrelevant. I didn't realise the age was a mouthpiece of the church. What does Christianity have to do with marriage? What does the Bible say about lamingtons? Because that's just about the same level of relevance. Why is this in the age? Not all readers are Christian, and marriage can be successful without Christianity. You know, it's why is this Christian even commenting? These the, the, the social media commentators don't know anything about Barney Schwartz, obviously, that he was actually one of the full-time writers for the age. He's not just a random comment, commentator. People don't realise what they're saying half the time. And when Paul opened his mouth, this is what happened to him. He gets called a babbler. Uh, the, the Greek word for babbler is spermologos, one of my favourite words, which literally translates to bird who picks up grain, a bird brain. He's like a bird brain who rooks around picking up grain. And, and he's getting called this because it's like they're saying he's one of those guys who walks around the marketplace and listens to a philosopher over here and a philosopher over there and a philosopher over there and like picks up grains of ideas and just mashes them together and comes up with his random thoughts. Ironically, this Greek word for babbler who picks up grain is, is a really fitting description of social media. And I think it's ironic that we have Twitter, <laughs> which is a bird, isn't it? If we use our creativity to engage with other creatives about the gospel, sometimes we're going to be accepted warmly like Tim is on his podcast and other times we will be mocked like Barney and like Paul. That's all part of what we're to expect. The people dialoguing with Paul, there were two kind of philosophy groups. There was the Epicureans, who were kind of the minority. They were the elites, and they didn't believe in God. <clears throat> and they believed in, like, the escaping of uh, pleasure, but through, through escaping suffering, ultimately through death. So they're not so much hedonist as such, but anyway. And, and then there were the Stoics, who were more popular, the mainstream in Athens, and they saw pleasure as a vice, and they believed in the pursuit of virtue, and more similar to Christianity in its ethics, that is. And it was the Epicureans who were probably thinking Paul's babbling on, and it was probably the Stoics who said he was preaching foreign gods. They probably thought, we think, that he was preaching about these, introducing these foreign deities, that's what they say, Jesus, this male deity, and Anastasis, this female deity, which means resurrection. So Jesus, uh, Paul's talking about resurrection all the time, resurrection, resurrection. They're hearing the word Anastasis, probably thinking he's talking about a female God, a male God and a female God. Paul's instinct is to talk about Jesus and his resurrection. That's the good news he came to preach. They were not angry, they were just baffled. What is he talking about? They hadn't heard anything like this before. So it says in verse 19, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of, of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. The Areopagus uh, was the high court of Athens. This is where 400 years earlier, the famous philosopher Socrates was tried and charged for what? Introducing foreign gods. And so there's Paul being taken to the Areopagus because he's 
introduce foreign gods, but they're not there to actually execute him. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul is being brought there. By, by this stage, interestingly, in Athens, they saw Socrates as a hero, not as someone to be scorned. But there's definite allusions to this story. Now look at how Paul engages with their culture, beginning with criticising their idol worship. In verse 22, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. It's a very bold observation. In every way, you are very religious. There is some sociologists and moral philosophers who say that contemporary culture in the West is very religious now. There's a new kind of religiosity emerging, a new code of what is righteous and what is sinful. And perhaps this is based around Western society's inability to deal with guilt. Uh, there's this kind of emerging increased, fo increased focus on therapy and counselling to deal with your guilt, on well-being and mindfulness to deal with guilt. And, and people now seem to deal with guilt by shaming others and presenting themselves as victims. It all sounds like a form of religion, doesn't it? Now, there's, it's hard to tell what the exact opposite of worship is here. But then again, as Paul said, those intellectual Athenians didn't really know who they worshipped. They even had an altar to an unknown god. And as Paul said, they didn't know what they were worshipping. So Paul attempts to tell them who the Christian God really is. And he begins by focusing on God, the creator of heaven and earth. He introduces them to the God who made the world and everything in it. The Lord of heaven and earth who does not live in temples built by human hands and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. The Christian God is not made by us. He's the one who makes us, says Paul. He gives us life and breath. And he operates this way so that we would seek him and find him. And while this makes him out to be cosmic and infinitely huge, yet he is close to every one of us, says Paul. And, and he says, even your own Greek poets have written about this, saying, we are his offspring. So he's saying, what are you doing building idols? And then in verse 28, Paul quotes two of their own philosophers, Epimenides and Aratus. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's one quote. And then the other one is, we are his offspring. So to sum up this first point, we're observing how Paul is his method here and what do we observe and how it relates to us and ministry with creatives to inspire them. His willingness to go amongst the people, his willing to engage with their culture, his willing to bring the gospel, to engage with their philosophy, he shows up points of connection and points of difference between the gospel and Athenian culture. He takes a risk and is willing to be mocked and he points people to Jesus and the God of the Bible. So you can see how it sharpens your mission to think this way. This is why we want to be a, a church that inspires creatives. It sharpens our mission. Secondly, it enriches our worship. 
And this is a short point that I'm going to finish on. What Paul demonstrates in his message is that God created us out of his love. And knowing this enriches our worship of him and helps us to understand our true identity. Paul says we are God's creation. God is not our creation. God is not made out of gold or silver or stone. Paul continued saying that God had a certain amount of tolerance for the confusion people had previously about him. But now that Jesus has come, he has less tolerance. Now that Jesus has come and died and risen again and revealed the mystery of the gospel, people have no excuse. Now is the time to repent and turn to Jesus before he returns to judge the whole world. And verse 32 to 35 says, When they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some wanted to hear more and others converted to Jesus. By pointing to God, the creator, Paul highlights an important truth about God, a truth that should speak to creatives. This is the question. Why did God create? Well, the answer is that he wants to create a universe of beings who share in the kind of love that he has. See, God is the ultimate artist, the ultimate creative. God is the ultimate entrepreneur. He creates because he wants to. He creates because it's who he is. It's part of his nature. He does it out of love. He uses his resources. He opens up a space for us to share with us his goods. And this is, I think, the profound bit. God is the ultimate artist who suffers for his art. He knew that his creativity would come at a cost. He knew that he would create human beings uh, with free will and what we would do with that free will. But he allowed himself to suffer for his art because he knew that in the end, the end result will be greater than the cost. At the end of Isaiah 53 verse 11, it describes the suffering servant saying that after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The results of his suffering, he would see and be satisfied. And I think knowing this brings great enrichment to my worship. It brings great focus to my worship of him. I'm going to read you a poem. Well, it's actually lyrics to a song. And it come, comes from one of my new Christian musical heroes. His name is Bill Fay. I bought his record about a month ago from Dutch Vinyl in, in Johnson Street. And I, I didn't know who he was. I just bought it because it said on the front, Nick Cave said, oh, you know, one of the greatest unsung songwriters of all time. And um, then I discovered he was a Christian. And his story is that in the early 70s, he was part of the English Jesus rock movement and he had these two albums. And then he was dropped from his label. And then he released a third album at the end of the 70s. And then he just disappeared into normality. And he had a family and just went on and worked in different things and wrote songs on the side. And then he, over time he became like this 
like this cult songwriter that people loved. So there were these bands that you may or may not have heard of like Wilco and Nick Cave and, and the War and Drugs who started obsessing over him, this Christian songwriter from the early 70s. And so a, a musical producer found him in 2012 and now by that stage he was in his late 60s and he said, how would you like to make your third album, or four, I think it was fourth album with me uh, at Abbey Road Studios in, in London? And he goes, really? Is anyone even listening to my music these days? And so that's what they did. And he got all these great musicians and they made this album, which was the first time he'd been in the studio for about 30 years. Anyway, here's some Bill Fay words. And this is music that is coming from his heart. He's a strong Christian. He has all these musicians around him and he's performed on television and he's just being himself. It's him reflecting on his life, the never-ending happening, the never-ending happening of what's to be and what has been. Just to be a part of it is astonishing to me. The never-ending happening of waves crashing against the cliffs, the falling sea the wind carries, the never-ending happening, souls arriving constantly from the shores of eternity, Birds and bees and butterflies prayed before my eyes. The never-ending happening of the four winds changing direction. Nightfall stars then rise again. Birdsong before the day begins. For some it's like tight rope walking, blindfolded and shaking. I need to start fearing pain. For some it's like tight rope walking. The never-ending happening of war evermore and so famine, yearning for the day to be when God will roll his stone away, the never-ending happening of what's to be and what has been, just to be a part of it is astonishing to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for that model of mission and gospel presentation that we see in Acts 17. We pray that we will be a church that continues to inspire creatives. We thank you for the ways that you've gifted our community with so many dynamic and interesting people. We pray that we can use it for your glory. Amen.